gonna take an experimental shot or I can't fly on an airplane or I can't have a job? Fuck you! Fuck you! Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. It's Thursday, August 18th, 2022. Today I'll be talking about the GOP primary loss of Liz Cheney in Wyoming and how it marks one of the final stages of the transformation of the Republican Party. Not by Trump, but by the people. Also be covering the seizing of Trump's passports and how it was an attempt at projecting the existence of a crime. Also in tech news, the World Economic Forum wants cell phones in your body by 2030. Canada quietly announces a national digital identity program and ascertaining mental health through the skin could be a reality. I'll be talking about these headlines and more coming up right now. From the Daily Mail, end of the Republican Party. Lincoln Project moans Liz Cheney's defeat to Harriet Hageman and says it will spark downfall of GOP as furious Democrats warn Liz Cheney is here to stay. So this is from the Western Journal from Bob Ehrlich. The GOP's transformation into the party of the working class is now complete. Democrats should worry. And he writes in his lead, The seismic displacement of voter coalitions have governed our political party structure since the New Deal proceeds apace. The ongoing realignment deepens each and every election cycle, but somehow remains of little interest to establishment media outlets. You see, the reconstituted parties do not fit their preferred narratives. Basically what he's saying here, and he writes... But the new millennium brought cracks within the respective party coalitions. America's Labor Party now manifests genuine disgust with its former core supporters. Here, a new generation of progressives find it easier to denigrate the working class, deplorables, flyover types, clingers to guns and religion, an indictment that grew uglier and more prolific during the Trump era. Millions of formerly enthusiastic Democratic voters have taken the hint and switched sides. They are especially drawn to Trump's habit of calling out both party establishments for their laissez-faire attitudes towards trade deals gone bad. And of course, both parties often sycophantic support for the murderous and genocidal regime in Beijing. That these primarily blue-collar types attend church services and back the blue and gun rights and a secure border has made their dramatic turn to the right easier over time. Now, what Ehrlich writes here, we're going to flesh out a little further as we go on. Because the mainstream media writes, Cheney defeat marks Trump's win over traditional conservatism. Now, the left is trying to paint this as it's Trump's doing. But in fact, this transformation, this change 
in the political spectrum in, of the United States has been happening for some time, but a lot of people just fail to recognize it, including the AFP. It's not really Trump's conservative. Back to the Daily Mail, Liz Cheney's annihilation was a stunning rejection of our incompetent, out-of-touch politicians. An anti-Trump Republican crybaby should be aware, writes Christian Witten. Much was made of former President Donald Trump's successful quest to dislodge the pro-faced, the po-faced Cheney, but onlookers should see the vote for what it is, a stunning rejection of incompetent and abusive polit political establishment. And it's not just the political establishment, it's the establishment at large. And you can see this, and he goes on to write, ultimately, what got her fired from Wyoming voters ought to be a warning to other GOP cryberries who whine about the new right Trump has created. And again, Witten here gets it wrong. Trump didn't create this movement, he was drafted by the movement. When the Democrat-run Congress bizarrely impeached Trump after leaving office, Cheney sided with the progressives. And he goes on how that she's out of touch, but she's an establishment politician. And as I said, even before the uh, 2016 election, the electorate sentiment was anti-establishment. The leading candidates for president in 2016 were not Hillary Clinton. The media wouldn't have you believe that, but that was true. But the leading politicians running for president were Bernie Sanders, anti-establishment left, and Trump, anti-establishment right. And so those were the real choices in 2016, but the DNC screwed Bernie out of his nomination. So go on to go on with the mainstream media. Here's the Washington Post. Trump's dominance of GOP comes into focus, worrying some in the party. Donald Trump is securing his his grip on the Republican Party less than three months after the midterms. Excuse me, before the midterms, with the GOP primary voters surging in the polls in Wyoming to oust his most vocal GOP critic. Scores of nominees for other states and federal offices amplifying his claims and bellicose rhetoric and many prominent party figures echoing his evidence-free attacks of the FBI search on his home. We all, everybody knows what this is. It's the corrupt establishment is out of control trying to cover their ass constantly by putting up these fake politicians. And when I say fake politician, Liz Cheney was supposed to be a representative in Congress. She wasn't representing the views of her states. If people knew how the Congress uh, was put together with senators that were appointed by the states that were supposed to do state, senators were supposed to do state business in the federal government. And the representatives were supposed to rep directly represent the voters. And actually they were elected by ballot way before senators were. So this is from Reason, Trump has radically transformed the GOP. The party has already given up on five of its core issues. There's been two schools of thought about what Donald Trump victory would do to the GOP. The spooked suggest that Trump's unprincipled self-serving populism would erode the GOP's core conservative commitments and hollow out the party's soul. The blase maintained that the cooler heads among the party stalwarts, such as House Speaker Paul Ryan, would change 
and temper Trump to make him appreciate the GOP's commitments. And this is back from 2017. But the verdict is in and the spook to right. Look no further than hundreds of Republican lawmakers who lustily applauded as Trump uttered one conservative poste after another during his joint address. Um, like I said, Trump was drafted into the movement and he didn't cause it. I mean, people think that this is Trumpism and in the media you'll look, it's Trumpism everywhere. It's not Trumpism. Trump is being a spokesman for the movement. And this is from The Federalist. And this is from 2020. There's no going back to the norm to normal after Trump. The Republican Party has changed forever. Donald Trump is not a Republican. He never was before, and he is not one now. As the nation speeds towards November 3rd, members of the GOP have been all over the board with predictions about the outcome, but some prominent Republicans have been consistently negative about Trump's prospects and even hopeful for his defeat. Peggy Noonan penned an archetypal anti-Trump article this month titled Biden, Pence, and the Wish for Normalcy. Noonan mused almost longingly that America might be headed toward an unprecedented landslide in favor of Joe Biden. If this happens, she said, one of the primary reasons will simply be that Biden is normal and people miss normal so much. Noonan, like many other Republicans who don't like Trump, want to go back to normal. The reality is we are never going back to normal. The old Republican Party is dead. This is from 2020 from The Federalist. Trump made a new party, and that is the party of the future. And then it goes on, the old GOP is dead, and it talks about why. And I just want to go to one um, sentence here, that its leaders lost the GOP's soul by following globalist policies and pursuing their personal wealth at the expense of the American people. Indeed. And it goes on, uh, the party of Trump isn't all Republicans. And it's not the party of Trump, and I'll explain to you why. The New York Times goes on to write how the GOP became the party the left behind. And they go into middle America. GM closed the plant at 42 with two toddlers. Mr. Hoskins found himself unemployed and his fortune soured. And they say... Uh, uh, New York Times here talks about the bitter clingers and people that were left behind by the jobs that exited this country and went overseas, mostly to Asia, but also to other countries like Mexico, particularly people that worked in manufacturing, lost all their livelihood. So what arose out of the globalization and the move for to put manufacturing overseas well, it was the Tea Party, of course, because people don't really look into the history. They blame Trump and they call it Trumpism, but it didn't start with Trump. And as Wikipedia writes here, it started in 2009. The Tea Party movement was an American fiscally conservative political movement. I thought the Trumpers weren't conservative. They weren't Republican. Of course they are. But they're rejecting corporatism. They're rejecting globalism, so it's republicanism, conservatism, without globalism. It began in 2009. Members of the movement called for lower taxes and a reduction in national debt and federal budget deficit through increased government spending, through decreased government spending. That's conservative. That's conservatism. 
So actually the establishment GOP became neoconservative. And if you know anything about neoconservatism, it's not conservative at all. Neoconservatives are so-called conservatives or rhinos who agree to vast amounts of spending. So it's actually a resurgence of conservatism that brought on the Tea Party movement and its rejection of globalism. Wikipedia goes on to write, the Tea Party movement has been described as a popular constitutional movement. Is that what you see in Trump supporters? Well, Trump wasn't running for president in 2009, was he? Composed of a mixture of libertarian, right-wing populist, and conservative activism. It has sponsored multiple protests and supported various political candidates since 2009, according to the American Enterprise Institute, various polls in 2013 estimate that slightly over 10% of American, Americans identified as the movement. It's much more now, but people don't call it the Tea Party movement anymore. They call it Trumpism because Trump has become a focal point for the movement. And it's really a liberty movement, a patriot movement, or as um, outlined in Congress, it's the Freedom Caucus. So the people that are interested in individual liberty and liberties overall with a conservative political platform that's anti-globalist. Just go a little further here. The Tea Party movement was popularly launched following the February 19, 2009 call by CNBC reporter Rick Santelli on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange for a Tea Party. Several conservative activists agreed for the conference call to coalesce against President Barack Obama's agenda and scheduled a series of protests. Supporters of the movement subsequently had a major impact on internal politics of the Republican Party. I'm not going to go any further because that's what we wanted to get to. So that's the, that's the reality of, of what's happening politically in the GOP. And the defeat of Liz Cheney is the death knoll into the neoconservative movement that launched with Leo Strauss. Now, if you were paying attention, I was talking about a New York Times Magazine article about the Claremont Institute where the New York Times uh, said, oh, they're all into Leo Strauss and stuff like that, and the neoconservatives. They're not neoconservatives. This is the new conservative, perhaps, but a lot of people are calling it the new Republican movement, not to be confused with neoconservatism. And the new Republican movement had its birthplace here in 2009 as the Tea Party. So moving to the next story, what is passport seizure? This is from Passport Info. What is passport seizure? And I just want to state here, what is passport seizure? Passport seizure is not a medical condition, they say. The term refers to Passports being confiscated by a government official so the passport bearer may not travel out of the country. And this is what I want to get to. Passports may be seized by governments if the bearer is suspected of committing a crime. Passports can also be seized by the issuing government while the uh, bearer is at home, which is what happened to Trump, to prevent flight out of the country while the bearer is under investigation for a crime or awaiting trial. Passport seizures are usually temporary and are different than passports being canceled or revoked. Um, who has the authority to seize a passport? Any government. 
um, the issuer, but the reason it's done, it is done by local, state, or federal law enforcement officers when a suspect in a crime has been passport seized by law enforcement, the passport can be held by the law enforcement agency until after the suspect has been tried. However, if the verdict is guilty, passport is sent on to the U.S. State Department, and then they'll determine what the appropriate thing to do is. So they were projecting the existence of a crime by seizing his passport. That was the idea. They leaked it out to say Trump's passports were seized. Why? Because often people in being investigated of a crime have their passports seized so they can't travel internationally. It was just a projection. It was propaganda because there is no crime, and that's why they won't seal the, unseal the affidavit. I usually don't quote Breitbart, but alleged passport seizure at Mar-a-Lago could undermine Trump's civil rights. Of course it did. It is clear that the seizure of picture books to passports to attorney-client privileged documents, this is unprecedented unnecessary raid that resulted in the DOJ being in the ones of possession of items that they have no legal authority to prevent, um, possess. Indeed, if they seize the passports um, without any evidence of a crime, uh, there can be some issue. Trump could make it a reasonable case in court that his Fourth Amendment rights have been violated, forcing the return of those passports at the very least, and that's why they returned them so quickly because they they realized that their leak had done its purpose and that they could be in a lot of legal trouble if they held on to them. All right, moving on to the tech news, the World Economic Forum Smartphones will be in your body by 2030. Uh, this is from The Pulse. According to Nokia CEO uh, Pekka Lundmark, the smartphone will not be the most common connectivity interface by 2030. Instead, smartphones will likely be implanted right into your body by then. By 2030, definitely smartphones as we know it today will not anymore be the most common interface. Many of these things will be built directly into our bodies. And this is coming straight from the World Economic Forum where these industry leaders met and discussed um, such advances. From CNET, the mobile phone of the future will be implanted in your head. Now, this is from 2016. The implantable technology in driverless cars headlined a number of bold predictions from Davos World Economic Forum survey of 800 industry leaders, the effects of software on our society. So this is from 2016, so this was already in the works. And they write in CNET, at least the thinking of the influential industry leaders who were surveyed by the World Economic Forum, a group of the world's most powerful leaders and tycoons who are meeting this week in 2016 in Davos. The survey offers a glimpse into the vision of the future and where society is headed. So now, um, connected devices, 3D printed, and yes, Phones in our heads. So this was already well on the way, and they are just recently codifying this. So that gives a green light to industry to start working on this brain uh, electronic interface, really a brain-computer interface that many have seen on the news. And this is from Canada National a digital identity program to be introduced to Canadians is from Euro Weekly. 
The Canadian government released the report regarding the digital ambition in 2022. The report released on August 4th stated since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, Canadians have increasingly worked, shopped, learned, and engaged with the government online. Their expectation or need for easy use, accessible digital options continue to grow, and many public and private sector organizations are transforming to use digital technologies to deliver better programs and services. More now than ever, we have to work to make it easier for Canadians to interact with the government of Canada, and we are committed to uh, serving Canadians in the digital age, this will require modern integrated systems and unwavering focus of the needs and experience of our citizens. We have made progress and continue to improve during the pandemic. The government quickly deployed new and innovative programs to support Canadians. We have seen these examples do more to deliver secure and reliable, easy to use digital services. Digital ID, like all technologies, can be helpful and privacy protective or harmful to privacy depending on how it's designed, indeed. So you know it's gonna be rolled out as enhancing privacy, any digital ID, uh, any um, biometric ID, all these things are bad. Tracking you, surveillance, all bad. In the United States, it's a violation of your Fourth Amendment. None of this stuff should go on because it's putting you in a dig digital prison. And if you know anything about the Sesame score or the social credit score, it's all gonna be intertwined and we already see that AI is gonna take control of it and decide whether or not you're allowed to go outside or go to work today or what have you. Or if you've been bad, whether you can travel at all. So this all being integrated by itself, it might not seem so harmful, but it's just like looking at the Snowden revelations and put that together with the Patriot Act you know, you see exactly what the goal is and how things like this could harm your freedom and liberty. This is from The Hill. New algorithm can track mental health through your skin. Ibo has been warning about mental adjudication because if they mentally adjudicate you, now they can apparently do it through your skin, is that if they mentally adjudicate you, they can limit your rights. And people don't understand that, and it's Kafka-esque, and the Soviet Union used to do this all the time, and in despotic regimes, and in communist China, they do the same thing. If you express dissident opinions, that's a sign of mental instability. If you believe in conspiracy theories or what have you, that's a sign of instability. So all they have to do is they, they take something and feel your skin with it and go, oh, we were right. You're, you know, you got mental problems. We're going to have to take your firearms. We're going to have to, you know, limit your access to X, Y, Z, limit your travel, and that will be put into your social credit score and your rights will be limited. And before I leave you today, I want to go into one Axios article. And this is from a study, What Americans Really Think, Difference Between Public and Private Opinion. And this article basically just states that people don't express their views because they're policing themselves online and just in generally in public what they really believe and what they uh, what they really believe they never state publicly because they're worried about social or even legal as we just talked about backlash. So if you express some opinion that you don't believe that the narrative of the official narrative of 9/11 uh, was true, 
that people start, you know, labeling you some sort of mental case. Or if you don't believe the official narrative of Sandy Hook or, or Uvalde or, or any other, uh, the, the FBI raid on this, that, or the other thing, they mentally adjudicate you um, socially and they use the social pressure. Um, and that's why they, they get everybody to join this leftist cult to put social pressure on people so they won't voice what they really think. And if they're critically thinking and they want to speak out, they won't because they're afraid of being shunned, shamed um, by the cult or by society in general or people on the internet or, or what have you. And this is this very, very dangerous because the fact of the matter being is that people need to speak out now because the door is closing. The velvet shackles are going on and it might feel nice at first, but... Once those shackles are tied to the floor, uh, people are going to be a little upset. And by then it'll be too late because they will have silenced dissent or any means of dissent. And, um, and that's really, really worrisome. Because then it's over. It's game over. There's no way to escape. Once dissent is silenced, you won't be able to garner enough populist support for any sort of political backlash or any other kind of resistance or opposition to tyranny, despotism, you know, and what they're spelling for us in the new world order for 2030 is really quite frightening. It's neo-feudalism. And you know what? 99% of the people are gonna be serfs. You'll have no property rights, you'll have no wealth. They'll take care of you. They'll keep you comfortable. But the reality is uh, you'll be in a prison with no means of escape. So that's it for me, Rudy's Revelation. Don't forget to like, subscribe comment and follow me on social media twitter facebook get our minds see you tomorrow